House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Now, my uh, regular co-host, not that he's regular, but he's our regular co-host, Mr. <laughs> David Martino, is back. I am back. Yeah, yeah, taking your cat out for his little um, health visit. Yeah, that's... <laughs> well, he know. loves that. Yeah. <laughs> he just loves it. Well, the other co-host, he had, had the same thing. He had that uh, the colonoscopy. Eric, did you see that? Oh, did he? Oh, yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> I did see that, actually, now that you say that. Uh, it's, it's, it's what a world we live in now, you know. They, they just they go in the hospital and they film themselves having a colonoscopy. I mean, you know, this is just something that you just. Twenty years ago, I would have never guessed any of this would be like it is now. But no, that's, you know, that's okay. It's crazy. A lot of people were having a terrible uh, shakes yesterday because Facebook and Instagram went down. Hey, and yes, and all that stuff, and uh, and uh, and the show too. We were recording a show, of course, so people that listen, I, I cleaned it up. But we were recording a show, and of course, we had no way of communicating, so we were just sort of asking questions and recording it, and then spliced it all together because we had no, no, yeah, flying <laughs> blind. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of good, and you can't see anybody, and you're sitting in a room going, "Oh, is it worth it?" <laughs> but it turned out okay. It'll be good. It'll be good. Anyway, so now uh, today we've got another writer uh, on the block in the chair, and uh, this guy, he's from uh, Alaska, but he's had quite the history if you read um, about it. He's been all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. and um, so anyway, he's got a new book out called Ghost Light, and um, his name is Stan Jones from Alaska. How are you doing? Hello, hello from up north. I'm doing great. How are you guys? Well, we're good. We're good, good, good. I was going to say, when you did the setup about the cat, I thought you were going to say he just returned from taking his cat for a walk, and I was like, well, I want to see the video of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if anybody does do it, it'd be him. That's true. You know, God, you know, I've never seen a more cat daddy in my life. Um (laughs) Wow, so you have quite the history, Stan. You've been all over the place. Like you lived in Tennessee, and uh, and uh, God, I can't believe how much you you know, uh, shooting squirrels and picked cotton and rode bareback and and uh, my God, and then you're back in Alaska. So you really like the uh, outdoor life. I do, I do. I like the uh, the wildness um, and the weirdness, and um, I live in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, I was actually born here, and the hospital that I was born in is now a Benihana. So when people say, where were you born? I say, I was born in Benihana. It's right downtown here. You were born there, and then you were taken to Tennessee. And, That's right. Uh, My... You know, in the Beaufort Husser area. <laughs> That's true. Well, I can't help it. Walking Tall, that was a movie <laughs> yeah. when I was young. That, yeah. Hmm, yeah. I actually went to a theater, so. Um, yeah. But you went back to Alaska. Was there something that just called to you, or wh- why do you think you went back to Anchorage? Well, uh, you know, just to sketch this briefly, my parents were from Tennessee, but soon after they were married, uh, they got the adventure bug, you might say, and, and came up and lived in Alaska uh, for just two years, during which time I was born. Then they went back to Tennessee, kind of went broke farming, and came back to Alaska when I was 12. So I lived here uh, from the time I was 12 through um, through college, basically. And, uh, you know, it just kind of got a hold of me. So when I grew up and got married, my wife and I came here and lived, and we've lived here most of the time since. Uh, some of the time in Anchorage, more of the time in Anchorage than anywhere else. Uh, some time in Fairbanks, where it gets cold, cold. When we lived in Fairbanks, we had some cars that we had to keep running at minus 70. And that's a job you just have to work at every day to make that happen. And then uh, we lived in Costaview for a while, which is a Inupat Eskimo village up on the Arctic coast. Um, and oddly enough, it doesn't get as cold out there, not on the coast, maybe down to minus 50, but no minus 70. 
And it was in Kotzebue that I became fascinated with the, uh, the rural or the bush culture of Alaska, uh, which led to the, the Nathan Active series and eventually Volume 7, which is Ghost Light. I, I have to ask, when you were in Kotzebue, uh, the, um, I hear a lot of uh, talk lately about the word Eskimo. I see it used and, and by you and, and and a lot of people in the uh, I don't know in the in the politically correct world say we're not supposed to say that word anymore. Well, you know, it's a kind of a delicate issue that I've had to grapple with in the books. The official internationally accepted word now for the the cultural group formerly known as the Eskimos uh, is Inuit, yeah. and. Uh, you almost never hear it in Alaska. Uh, what you hear is the name of the particular uh, ethnic group that makes up the larger, what used to be Eskimo group. Um, and in northwest Alaska, uh, they're the, um, the Inupat. Uh, a little farther south down the coast, there are Yupik um, Eskimos, or Yupik Inuit if you prefer. Uh, and it's the peculiarities of how that has all landed in northwest Alaska where my books are set that make it kind of ticklish in this age of cultural sensitivity. Um, in Kotzebue, which is the model for the village Chukchi in the series, uh, Eskimo is just used freely. The, you know, there's no bad vibe or bad connotation to it. People refer to themselves as Eskimos. Um, one of the buildings in town is called the Eskimo Building, and it's owned by, you know, Eskimo or Inuit organization. There's a big uh, a big company up there in the north called Eskimos Inc. So what you hear, you know, kind of on an equal basis up there is Eskimo or, or Inupat, which is the people, or Inupak, which is one person or the language. Um, but I'm not sure I've ever heard Inuit. Just walking around the street, talking to the people I know, listening to the public radio station, um, so Inuit is not like a forbidden word or bad. It's just not used up there. So I kind of have to navigate those waters in, um, in the book. Uh, there's actually a little note on language that has all this information in that I just shared, um, followed by a glossary of a few um, Inupak language terms that are sprinkled in the book to give it some authenticity sauce. So, um, yeah, it's... <laughs> It's been a little tricky navigating those waters. I find myself just saying something of how I grew up. You know, I'm almost 60 now, so I just say things of, and not realize that someone gets upset. And I heard that with Eskimo, I think just a couple of weeks ago, someone said that to me. Well, you can't say that anymore. Like, oh, okay, I didn't really realize. But that's, that's how it comes. To, it surprises me. Uh, I certainly have never said it meaning anything negative. But Yeah. Um, well, it's just how it I, don't, is. I don't know that there's any place in Alaska, at least, where it's in any way comparable to um, the N-word or kind of similar ethnic slurs that have been applied to Hispanic people and Italians and Jews and, and you know, other ethnic groups. It definitely has not reached that level, I suppose, as um, times go by. Time goes by. It may just sort of fade. I mean, maybe younger people won't use it anymore. I don't know. But at the moment, um, in, in the real world of Northwest Alaska and in the books, there's no, there appears, seems to be no stigma attached, whatever. Well, we'll see if we can fix that here. Uh, <laughs> hey, thanks a lot. <laughs> no, but, uh, <laughs> You're going to get me canceled, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of my, uh, my goal in life, is to cancel as many people as possible. No, <laughs> waste my time. Um, well, so uh, tell us the, the main character, Nathan Active. Who is Nathan Active? Well, Nathan Active, the guy that I created when I realized that I'd really like to write books about um, that culture and that place. Um, I wasn't, um, you know, I'm not an Indian Eskimo, um, but I really was fascinated by the culture, and I wanted to write a character operating in that culture, and I knew he should be, he should be an Indian So I came up with, a, with Nathan Active, and here briefly is his story. He was born to an unwed mother who was 14 years old at the time, and she adopted, adopted him out to a couple of uh, white school teachers who worked in the village, sort of calculating he would have a better shot at life that way than if he was, you know, a child of an unwed teenage mother in, in Chukchi. 
So the school teachers fairly soon transferred out of Chukchi, and, and Nathan was raised in Anchorage. So uh, his, you know, growing up culture was basically white urban Alaska culture. Uh, and in particular, he did not like Chukchi and did not like his mother. And the reason he didn't like his like Chukchi was that his mother lived there and he hated his mother for abandoning him. So he grew up wanting to have nothing to do with Chukchi or his mother. But he did somehow um, inherit the cop gene from somewhere. So he became an Alaska state trooper, went through the academy, which is down in southeast Alaska on the coast in a place called Sitka. And uh, the troopers with the uh, customary perversity of bureaucracies since time immemorial naturally sent him to Chukchi for his first duty assignment as a trooper. And that is how the series began in book one, which was called White Sky, Black Eyes. He lands in Chukchi. He has to adapt to being a rookie trooper, being back in the same town with his mother, being in this place he's hated. And when he shows up there, one of his main goals in life is to get a transfer out of Chukchi as fast as possible. Well, seven years later, he is still there. He's reconciled with his mother. He's kind of grown to like and be amused by Chukchi. And now he's become the uh, the police chief of the regional public safety department. Left the troopers to become a, you know, in, in the rest of America, he might be called a, a county sheriff, except his job is is not a political job. He don't run for it. The borough assembly hired him for it. So he's police chief of a big, sprawling piece of Alaska, you know, larger than several states, probably. They have a Alaska troopers on uh, one of those networks. And, <laughs> I know, uh, I know. Man, it seems like there's so, there, there, well, there's so few police, and it's so spread out. It's oh, such, I know. such a mileage to cover. I know. It's, it's amazing. You know, I live in Anchorage, which is um, sort of an ordinary American city of 300,000 or so, and day-to-day life is is Anchorage, which is pleasant and has a lot of open space and wilderness and stuff. But then, you know, you take a trip. I go to Kotzebue as often as I can, and we take road trips. And you get out in the middle of Alaska, and you see all this wilderness that just rolls on and on and on. And you realize that, you know, in Alaska, people are, are just barely bug specks on the windshield. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I tell you, I wouldn't want to do that job. That's... Uh just amazing how much they have to cover and uh but um i i wonder this um this nathan how much of yourself do you think you put into him well i think it's almost inevitable that you'll put quite a bit of yourself into at least the protagonist <clears throat> because if you want to if you want to spend some time with the protagonist and you want the reader to do it you eventually end up needing to show how he sees the world. And uh, the easiest way to make him seem like a real person is to feed in some of how you see the world, because you can explain that uh, succinctly and briefly, sometimes in the, in, by means of uh, uh, exposition, sometimes in dialogue, or sometimes just by a sort of flash reference to what the guy's thinking at some given moment. So, yeah, he comes in like that. Uh, the rest of his backstory being, you know, the child of a unwed mother and that is all, all just made up for, for dramatic and narrative purposes. Now, I see you've got a history of doing some journalism and stuff. I wonder, um, me being in that same boat, I, I think that um, I write nonfiction pretty much. And I wonder if this has more of a nonfiction edge, even though it's it's a, a fictional story. Um, you know what I mean? It's not. It, it, and I ask that because um, do you have a? Because the fiction writers I talk to, I can say, well, what's your relationship with the uh, characters you write in your book? And a lot of them will say, well, it's like family, it's like friends, it's like children, and stuff like this. Can you find, do you, do you feel the same way about your characters? Well, I, you know, I've never uh, pondered this question before, but I think it's a, a plausible hypothesis. I mean, when you do something for a long time, um, you learn to think a certain way and express yourself in writing a certain way. And really, I don't see how that could fail to sort of come through onto the page of, of the novels. Um, 
I think they're pretty good stories. Some some reviewers have referred to the scenes uh, being set up like film shots. So I do try to think in terms of scenes as opposed to paragraphs or the old journalistic pyramid structure with the big news at the top and you know news of ever shrinking significance as you go farther through the story. But um, I guess one, you know, it strikes me there's one part of journalism that probably applies to um, to being a detective too, and that is um, the one of the eternal questions of life: How do you know the things that you think you know? And that question of of what do we know and how do we know it is, of course, at the heart of journalism and investigation. Well, do you think working as a journalist has made you a more efficient writer with uh, deadlines and such? Um, well, it did when I was a journalist. It, I don't think it has um, as a novelist. It's just I take longer to write books than I think I should. It takes at least a year and sometimes two for me to write a book. Hmm. Um, and I, and I, my explanation is, well, it takes time to overthink everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You print a word, erase a word, print it again, erase it again. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You, you always uh, feel like you've got these sort of real serious legendary writers looking over your shoulder, and you can hear them saying, come on, you really going to say it that way? <laughs> and sometimes you just have to say, yes, I am. Now leave me alone. When you when you go to, to, to continue, like when you're doing this, this is, you said this is a uh, – um, a part of a series. Yeah. Um, did Did you have this all mapped out ahead of time? Did you know how many books you were going to write about this character and his life, or uh, do you to like kind of pre-formulate what you where you're going and what you're going to do, or is this just come as it comes? Well, um, I did not have a book count in mind, and I only had at the start only had two or three of the specific books you know, kind of vaguely plotted out in my head. But I did have a big arc uh, in mind for the series. Number one was Nathan being forced to move to Chukchi and eventually reconciling himself to it and coming to like it or love it as part of it. Uh, and in the books, it was signified that he had made this permanent shift when he became head of the local police department instead of a state trooper on assignment who might rotate out someday. That was when he bought into being, you know, back home in Chukchi. And I always had in mind the idea of um, him meeting the love of his life up there, and that's in uh, the uh, third book of the series, and it's a really fraught story, as you can imagine. So I thought that would happen. Um, and other than that, it's kind of been one story at a time. Does someone have to read them all in order or someone could pick up like book three or book four and just read it and they would still get, they don't need to have them all in their head, do they? They do not. I mean, certainly the plots are not connected, so, so you don't have to worry about that. And usually there's enough backstory worked in in the first uh, chapter or two that you can get a picture of this guy and, and who he is and, and you know what's going on with him. Do you have an underlying theme in your story that you want people to get? So when you have each book that comes up and you put Nathan through certain things to deal with, um, besides the top-line story of what goes on with him and the other characters, let's say his mother or love of his life and stuff, um, is there subtext there? Well, probably the probably there is. I would say that um, one of the themes running through all of the books is that life tends to be a lonely place. You know, life is short and uncertain, short and uncertain, I sometimes say, so leave us enjoy it while we may. So given that life is an uncertain journey, the, the, uh, which will end on a date we can't know in advance, um, you know, we're, we're kind of all an island unto ourselves, which means in a way, that we appreciate even more the nice things that happen in life, especially um, in the people that we that we know and love. So if there's a theme running through it, that's it. Life is lonely, and 
the people you know, the experiences you have, the places you enjoy being, those are those are what make it bearable. I'm wondering, has Nathan ever done anything to surprise you? Has he have done something outside of what you wanted him to do, let's say, in the plot? Um, I know I can't think of any big surprises that, that he... That that he sprung on me. Um, there are little surprises along the way. I just let him unfold through the book uh, as he sees fit, and sometimes they surprise me. Have any of the other characters? Well, the love of Nathan's life is a deeply troubled woman, a, a woman with a deeply troubled past named Grace Palmer. And the way that Nathan becomes. Um, infatuated with Grace Palmer, who was a, a beauty queen in high school, or right after high school, um, is that he sees a picture of her in the local high school in her beauty queen days, and he kind of falls in love with the picture without realizing what's happening to him, which is um, in some ways like the famous crime novel, Laura. Um, so as he finds himself uh, pursuing Grace, it turns out that she's missing and has been missing for a while. And the last anybody knew was a homeless alcoholic on the street in Anchorage. So he starts trying to figure out what happened to her and find out who murdered her, only to find out she wasn't really murdered. Um, uh, and she, in a way, is one of the most amazing characters in the whole series because she went through unbelievable trauma as a child and then became a homeless person. Um, and then managed to fix herself largely through her own resources. Um, and when she finally does come back to Chukchi, um, she settles the score with someone who damaged her very severely. Um, and so he gets to sit in the gallery in the audience and watch the love of his life stand trial for murder. Um, and as it works out, she gets off. And he marries her and has a child with her, but um, does not know to this day whether she's innocent or guilty. Of course she's guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Oh, come on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> come on. That's the, the listeners want to know. Come on. <laughs> she did it. So she's always full of surprises. There was, a, there was one really surprising character in one of the books. The book was called Tundra Kill. Um, and uh, the uh, the suspect, uh, and possibly probably guilty suspect, was uh, the gorgeous female governor of Alaska, a woman named uh, Helen Mercer, uh, also known as Helen Wheels. <laughs> and uh, if she's if she, you know, any any resemblance to any real gorgeous female governor of Alaska, living or dead, is purely coincidental. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Some of that person she's not based on. Her, some of her history was moved to Chukchi, and then now she's the governor from Chukchi. And she's, um, she's hell on wheels, just like her nickname said. Could she see uh, Russia from her balcony? Just asking for a friend. You can come a lot, a lot closer to doing that from Chukchi than you can from Wasilla. But there is, um, I actually, I myself have seen Russia from Alaska. There's one place in Alaska where uh, a U.S. island is separated from a Russian island by about a three-mile sea passage. You can definitely see Russia from your house on, uh, on yeah. Little Miami. That's the name of our island. Yeah. <laughs> I had to do it. There's like the, you know, um, Helen wheels and stuff like that. Where do you get these uh, characters from? Do you are you are you the guy that's hanging out in a coffee shop in Alaska in Anchorage and kind of going and seeing people or, or seeing them on the street or people you've met? Um, is there some sort of correlation with things you're doing day to day that helps you pick up ex accessory characters? I guess it's it's kind of um, all of the foregoing, really. Uh, I get some of it from just hanging out um, anywhere. I mean, anywhere you go, you may hear something or see a person who could fit into any kind of a story anywhere. The uh, the location and the and the detective, in a way, are just the the vessel into which you pour the story and the makeup of the story as human beings. You know, 
they're kind of all the same everywhere. Um, I do try to get back up to Kotzebue twice a year, although I haven't done it during the pandemic. Um, so usually we go up on the 4th of July, which is a huge party up there, just absolutely wonderful. Endless daylight, usually pretty good weather, and they have all kinds of 4th of July festivities. And I think the, the favorite part of that thing for me is the beautiful baby contest. And all these mothers dress up in their finest, um, you know, furs and Eskimo finery, and they dress up their babies, and they come and walk across the stage and hold up the babies and the crowd cheers, and I take pictures, and it's absolutely wonderful. So that's the 4th of July. The other big thing we go to up there is the uh, Kobuk 440 sled dog race. And this is a race that starts on the sea ice in front of Kotzebue. It runs uh, 220 miles up the Kobuk River to the village of Kobuk, then turns around and comes back. It happens in uh, usually around April 10th. And that's a beautiful time of year up there. Uh, the temperatures are mild, and by mild I mean not below minus 10. Uh, the sun is already riding pretty high by <laughs> by by early April, so there's uh, long days with lots of light. The landscape is still completely snow-covered and frozen, so it's this brilliant white, and you get this brilliant white landscape, this brilliant um, spring sun, and the look of the country is just gorgeous that time of year, just dazzling. So we go up for that, and everybody's all having a great time because the dog races and the mushers and the beautiful animals and people come into town from all over, some to race, some to watch. And ordinarily when I'm up there um, for the Kobuk 440, I try to get a ride-along with a bush pilot. So I get to ride around over the country, over that gorgeous uh, spring landscape and and see it all and sort of recharge my batteries for the look of the place. And then also I usually um, try to do a, a ride-along with the Cotsdue police and kind of see what's going on on the street up there. So all of that, you know, is a, just an endless source of raw material. And I can tell you that these days, um, Facebook is a pretty good source of material. You see things on there, little anecdotes. You see what people look like. You see what they're doing. You uh, uh, seemingly, regardless of ethnicity, you see way more than you want to know about what they had for dinner. Um, but other than that, it's um, <laughs> it's a really <laughs> a really useful way to keep track of people, what they're thinking about, what they're worrying about, and you know, to be honest, also about the mundanities of life. Because if you flesh out a story with a few of those, it definitely makes it seem more real. Well, you mentioned um, being kind of a visual writer that that uh, you see images. And I was wondering, can you also hear uh, the characters in your head? I know I don't hear voices, so that's why I asked that. <laughs> well, um, I do. I mean, I'm as fascinated by language as I am by um, by images. And in the books, uh, some of the people um, speak, um, I don't know if you'd call it a, a dialect or a pidgin or something, called village English. And it's enough of a thing that it's been studied and there are, you know, learned papers about it but it's a it's a sort of a clip down minimal vocabulary form of english that i i assume d developed because the people of that of that part of the country picked up english as a second language from you know traders and stuff they didn't go to school in it or anything so um so there's quite a bit of village english in the books and and that's definitely something i can hear in my head uh, and whenever I'm in Kotzebue, um, I hear it. And also, when uh, my uh, you know Inupat friends from up there post on Facebook, some of them just spontaneously kind of write in village English. So, so I I always hear that in my head when I'm writing those characters. And I'd say also I hear I hear the voices even of you know uh, white or non-village English characters because the way people talk is one way to distinguish characters in, in a book. And some characters, I and mean, in some books I read, and including some by really famous rich people, um, I mean, if the dialogues weren't tagged, I don't know that you could tell who's talking. They all sound alike to me. Well, do, do these voices tell you to do different things that are kind of weird? or <laughs> just, I, just, no. just... No, no, so Dave's cat is definitely safe. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> the cat lives with him, so I don't know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I look, I look back, and I see uh, you. You were a journalist for quite a while. You, you know the Exxon Valdez and stuff you covered, and all that. How, how do you think journalism's gone since your day? Do, you know, with all the attacks and the weird things and stuff like that, or do you kind of just stay away from all that? Well, um, I'm a, an avid consumer of journalism, and I spend. You know, cumulatively through a day, probably an hour reading news online. And I favor a really great news app called Smart News, as it happens. Um, and then I watch some news on TV, usually when I'm doing other things. You know, I watch it with uh, half an eye and uh, with one eye and listen with one ear. Um, well, the big ways, the biggest way that journalism has changed, I think there are two. One is that uh, the Internet has almost destroyed print journalism, except for a few big papers. And that's very different. Um, for uh, another, there are just so many ways to get news now, it's almost impossible to define exactly what news is. I mean, if you take the New York Times and print or go on their website, you know what you're looking at. If you go through your Facebook feed and see all these uh, story links there, you have no idea what you're looking at. And even if you don't click on them, the headline may uh, sneak its way into your brain and, and you may think you know something that actually is not true. So I would say that in journalism, uh, what passes for journalism, um, the uh, signal to noise ratio has deteriorated dramatically because there's so much news and pseudo news around now. And the, the third, I was going to name two, but here's the third one. The third one, of course, is the rise of the 24-hour cable news channels. And aside from the questions of which one is more to the left or more to the right, the fact is they've got 24 hours a day to fill with something. And inevitably, most of it is just going to be uh, piffle, or or even even in the case of whichever uh, news channel it is you don't like, you know, pernicious lying nonsense. But the fact is, there's a ton of it. We're just we're buried under an avalanche of news now. Yeah, it's crazy. I um I stay away from it, but um, I like local news the best. But um, you know. Uh, so, so what are your big influences then? Like, where do you, where, what influences you as far as other writers? Well, you know, there there are just so many. Um, there's almost nothing that I read consistently or exclusively or regularly. I read um, some crime fiction. I know I'm reading an anthology. Believe it or not, a noir anthology of you know short pieces, short stories, set in Palm Springs, which is not what you think of as a noirish place. Um, back when I was first starting the series, and I really wanted to get as deep a background as I could in the, in the local culture, um, I read a lot of books written in the late 1800s and early 1900s by various explorers and whalers and adventurers and that kind of thing who encountered the culture when it was still essentially in its original form. So I have read a lot of that um, uh, in the day. And uh, let's see, what else am I reading? I'm reading a novel called um, Island of the Sea Women, which is a, a book about um, this particular island in Korea where the men stay home and take care of the babies, and the women go out and dive in the sea and gather seaweed and uh, fish and shells and stuff to sell to um, to make a living, so that's a that's definitely a part of the world that uh, you know you just I, not something I see very much. Um, on what else? so there's the Palm Springs book, there's the, the seaweed book, um, and I recent recently read a collection of short stories by a very literary female writer whose name escapes me at the moment. At the moment, so once in a while. I do tip my, dip my toe back into the uh, the culture of serious literature, although I try to avoid it for the most part. 
You were supposed to mention me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I um, actually, I think, I think, I think I want to have a look at your book, uh, Killer Queens. Oh, because um, <laughs> as I mentioned in one of my emails, I'm starting this, trying to start this new series set in the Palm Springs area, and um, you know, there's a huge gay culture there. Um, and that won't, won't necessarily necessarily be a big part of it, but I figured, you know, some some true crime stories involving um, gays could only help sort of background me in that in that subject area. Well, I can send you a copy. I I know the writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll send we'll exchange copies. I'll send one of mine. You send one of yours. How's that? Sounds good. Well, and then that's what you mentioned. That you said that. Um, you're taking on this um, Palm Springs area, and you're starting a new um, a new a book or a mystery set in Palm Springs, right? Uh, female PI and right. stuff like that. Um, what made you go right. down there? Maybe maybe tell people a little bit about what it is and and what what what's making you go to that area to write. Well, I'll tell you, it was a pure chance. I have a lifelong friend who um, has taken to snowboarding down there um, in the winter. He's from Juneau, Alaska, but was you know, a kid in Anchorage when I was. We went to school together. So he was, uh, you know, met a, new, met a new lady, the love of his life, and they started spending time in Palm Springs, and then they got married, and now they bought a, a place down there and lived there about half the year. So I started going to visit him. And I was prepared, except for the visiting of, with my friend, to be completely bored by Palm Springs, perhaps even offended. Because I'm thinking this is going to either be suffoc suffocatingly pleasant or it's going to be full of annoying, uh, annoying, boring, rich people. I'm going to hate every minute of it. Well, it turned out not to be like that because what I shortly realized is that that part of California, the Coachella Valley running from Palm Springs at one end down to the kind of wastelands around the Salton Sea at the other end is in its own way about as weird as the Alaska bush. So I, you know, just started hanging out there a little more and a little more and spent some time in Slab City and, and down in the ecological horror story known as the Salton Sea and in Palm Springs. And I just said, this is, this is the second most fascinating place I've ever been. Uh, other than the Arctic, so that was that was why I decided to try and write, write stories set down there. Yeah, it's quite the, it's quite the town. So just leave it at that. I have listened. It to is. So. <laughs> it, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, well, it is. It is an amazing town, um, and the surface is all you know, uh, <clears throat> golf courses and um, the fancy stores on Palm Canyon Drive, but you know. Those are human beings, so guess what's going on under the surface? The usual stuff, and it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I but I, I don't play golf, and I've never had plastic surgery. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's two of the three main religions down there. The other one being real estate. Yeah. Where to next for um, for you? It's just going to be that Palm Springs sort of series or book, um, or do you have some more going on with uh, Nathan? Well, I'm going to try to come out with another Nathan book um, sometime in the next couple of years. Um, and I have a kind of techno horror story that's worked its way into my head. Uh, and for some reason, it wants to be a screenplay instead of a book. And, you know, good luck, good luck getting any screenplay into the system from the outside. But sometimes the story just wants to tell itself a certain way. I did write one previous screenplay with a with a co-writer um, and it was a lot of fun and it won uh, some first at film festivals, but again, good luck getting anything into the system from the outside. But as I say, sometimes the story just wants to be told in that format, I think. And it seems to be the case with this little techno horror journey I want to take. You write with a co-writer. I see quite often. How is that? Like what kind of format or how do you do that? Well, I've, I've written two, I've written one screenplay with a co-writer and um, two Nathan books with a co-writer and a Palm Springs book 
was was partly written with a co-writer. We're no longer working together on it, but part of it was. Um, And the usual way that it works is that the co-writer does a, well, we, we we can collaborate or confer on the plot, sometimes one chapter at a time. Sometimes we build the next chapter off the previous chapter rather than having a full plot in mind when we start. Um, but oftentimes co-writer really does most of the first drafting and then I revise it to, to put it in, into what I call my voice. Um, and we just kind of uh, thrash our way through it. My co-writers to date have all been female and that's because I, I became interested in the need and the idea of trying to work something of a female sensibility into the books because so many readers are women. So, um, so far I've exclusively worked with female co-writers for that reason. Well, after writing, uh, your books, um, especially, um, you know, uh, when you, when you're, when you're finished with, with the story, do you, do you, um, have any way to uh, relax and recharge? Do you uh, do you need to decompress from that, or do you just move on to the next book? Well, generally, I just move on to the next book because it's already been forming in my head for a while, and I may have some notes on it, maybe even you know a couple of characters. I might even have drafted a scene or two or some exchanges of dialogue. So um, I don't really take a break specifically between books per se. I just sort of take one when I need one. Um, mm. And I've been to Palm, you know, I go to Palm Springs or go to Cottesville or just take a break here in Alaska. But it's more a matter of feeling, yeah, it's time to, time to check out for a bit and go do something else. But it, it's at the same time, it's hard to get away from it, you know. It's, if it's always in your head, mm. you're always making at least mental notes about what's going to happen next. And I, You know, I suppose it's like if you were, if you had a, a passion for photography. Um, would you ever take a break from photography? Well, not really. Mm. Take pictures around your hometown if you see something interesting. And if you go to a different place, you take pictures there, too. Uh, it's something like that, I think. So now where do people find you? Do you have a website now, or do you like people to contact you on Facebook or uh, find out about your books and things like that? Where, where, where should someone go? Well, um, I have a website. And I do have a very active Facebook page for my books. And those are the two main outlets. I I have a Twitter account, but I confess I don't do much on it. And the same is true of Instagram. Um, And then, um, you know, Amazon does a fairly decent job of putting together an author page. So one way to find me would be, to go to sjbooks.com. The first two letters there are my initials, SJ, sjbooks.com. You can just search for my name on Facebook, um, or you can search for my name on Amazon, or, you know, there's always Professor Google. Professor Google can find, can find <laughs> anything. So, um, I, I have a, a book event coming up uh, pretty soon here in Anchorage, and when I contacted the, the venue about it, they said, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, do the, the launch thing for Ghost Light. And why don't you come in and we'll make a video and we'll put it on the website for our gallery. It's in a, a art gallery, actually. And then, um, the guy who proposed all this is part of the Alaska Center for the Book. And he says, we'll put it up on the Alaska Center for the Book website for Alaska Book Week, which is now, but the last I looked, they didn't have anything up yet about Book Week. Um, so uh, we made the video, and uh, and I got a copy of it. I said, huh, I wonder if I could put this video on YouTube, because I don't think I've ever put anything on YouTube before. But I did, and it was easy, and they invited me to make a channel. So I'm going to put some more of these things up and make a Stan Jones channel on YouTube. Um, and then I was on uh, Amazon the other night <clears throat> checking on my books, and does the author page have them all. And Amazon, for some reason, said, I was, I was on the part of the page, author page that's for Ghostlight, and Amazon said, upload a video. And I said, what? I didn't know you could do that on Amazon. So I took the same video and uploaded it to Amazon. And 
as of now they're reviewing it, but I hope they put it up. So these days it's becoming um, increasingly possible to, to be everywhere all the time. Mm. And the video, in case you're wondering, the uh, the guy who uh, told me to put the, you know, invited me to do the video said, you know, just uh, we'll just put you down, put you in a, on a stool in front of a white backdrop, and um, you can talk a little bit about the series and then maybe read the opening passage of the book. So I did that. And it runs about 11 minutes. Me talking about the series is three to four minutes. And it basically is the same thing I've discussed here on, on your show. Um, and then the read from the book is about seven minutes. So it's an 11-minute video. My expectations were somewhere between no and uh, nil and low. Um, but after I saw it, I, I just said, well, actually, this kind of works. It was just interesting to me to see a writer um, on, on the screen you know, talk about his work and then read from it. Um, I certainly wouldn't try to read the whole book on video or even one chapter, but for, you know, a seven-minute excerpt, I thought it worked. So um, I'm going to try to do another video for each of the books in the series and then uh, one more for just a shorter discussion of the whole series and what it's about. You'll be a TV star before you know it. Can't wait to see the one you do for Palm Springs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, that's right. Well, I I'll do, send you a harness. Do, do one <laughs> Palm Springs look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 God, I, yeah. I, you know, among, among the many ways that Palm Springs surprised me was how delightful some of the controversies are down there. Have you ever heard of For, Forever Maryland? <laughs> no. Here's Forever Maryland. Some sculptor took it into his head, I think it was a he, to do a 26-foot statue of Marilyn Monroe in that famous scene from Some Like It Hot, where the sidewalk grate is blowing up her skirt. (laughs) So they decided Forever Maryland was actually in Palm Springs for a year or two around 2010-11, something like that, and then it left. I don't know why. And apparently went into storage somewhere. But there was some sort of movement to bring it back to Palm Springs, so they decided to bring it back. Well, as you can imagine, this uh, did not go without some controversy. I mean, it, it, it clearly sexualizes, you know, the screen icon. So there was all of that and huge back and forth at the city council meetings and, you know, on Facebook and all that. And then, then came the question of where to put her. Well, they decided to put her right smack in front of the local art museum, which did not go over well with the serious <laughs> artist folk of Palm Springs. Even worse, Marilyn, with her skirt blowing up, is facing away from the art museum entrance. So as one complainer put it, she is basically flashing the art museum when I come out the door. <laughs> So, so the other thing that happens with um, Forever Maryland, uh, although the high-minded people don't like her, tourists love her. And you know what they like to do? They like to go and stand between her legs and look up her skirt and have pictures taken of themselves <laughs> that they can post on Facebook. Yeah, so um, it's just a never-ending fun show in Palm Springs. Well, it's better than anti-maskers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm you surprised know. they didn't put a mask on Maryland, but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah. It won't be long. Um, well, certainly, <laughs> certainly a great conversation with you today, and I'm glad you came on the show. And I guess, I guess the pandemic thing didn't really – did it really affect your writing style or your <laughs> – your life a whole it lot? It did, or? it did, and I'll tell you exact. I'll tell you exactly how it is. It's really a perplexing thing. When I started this Palm Springs book, I gave the matter some thought because you know it was in. I've been writing it during the pandemic, and I said to myself, "What do you do about the pandemic? If it's over when the book comes out, you don't want much pandemic in it. Um, if you if it's still going when it comes out, you want everybody wearing masks or what?" And the big problem is, who knows when it's going to be over, right? Uh, early early this year, when everything was at a low, I kind of thought, well, okay, in the book, I'll just put the pandemic a vague amount of time in the rearview mirror, right? Occasional references, 
Uh, turned out a pandemic nursing home death was a minor but interesting part of the story. Um, and then the Delta variant came, and I said, well, crap, I don't know when this thing's going to be in the rearview mirror. So I kind of gave it some thought and said, do I leave it this way and perhaps have it be completely inauthentic when it comes out? Or should I just take out the pandemic and put it in a fictional world in which the pandemic doesn't exist? And I finally decided I just had to take it out because any way of putting it in risked uh, a serious lack of authenticity when it comes out, whereas leaving it out completely just establishes, all right, we're in the pandemic, the non-pandemic world that existed before the pandemic and hopefully will exist after. And in this book, we're not going to talk about it. It It was a real conundrum for me. Oh, yeah, it's a tough one, right? It's really tough. Seriously, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how it goes. Um, not much we can do. Um, well, uh, yeah. we're life, all, life always serves up surprises, many of them quite unpleasant. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at my co-host. Well, yeah, exactly. we're running out of time here, so uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, the book we were focusing on is Ghost Light, and it's a Nathan active mystery, and our guest has been Stan Jones. Thank you for being here. Thanks. It's been wonderful fun. Thanks, Stan. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This is Peter. Of something with media.